You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love. Is there anything more wonderful than the feeling of bliss with a miss? Or feeling high about a guy? Love gives life meaning, the world brightness. It puts the couplet in poems. I raised my eyes and you were there. A fleeting vision, the quintessence of all that's beautiful and rare. And the passion in plays. How silver sweet sound lovers' tongues by night, like softest music to attending ears. And let's not forget the harmony in song. Hit it. L is for your lips of dopamine. O is for oxytocin to make you keen. V is very, very evolutionary. E is estrogen, testosterone, and serotonin. Love is all that I Ah, yes, estrogen, serotonin, and testosterone, just a few of the chemicals that put the flutter in Cupid's arrow. You've heard that love comes down to chemistry between two people. Turns out that's literally true. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. In this hour of Are We Alone? The Chemistry and the Purpose of Love. Why do bees and educated fleas do it, if indeed they do? Romantic love is a basic drive, a drive, in fact, to win life's greatest prize, the right mating partner. Find out more what drives us to a more. We all know what it feels like. I wonder if I could ask you a question. I saw you snuggling up to what I supposed was your husband. You look like you're canoodling there a bit. Am I right? Absolutely. I love my husband. Are you in love? Totally in love. We're interested in the same things. We talk nonstop. And there's room in our relationship for just all sorts of romance and feelings. It's fantastic. What does it feel like is happening to your body when you're in love? I don't know about my body, but I know that when I really feel that I'm in love, I go around with a big smile on my face. And then I recognize I'm happy. When you're in love, you smile and the world smiles with you. But why should this be? After all, love is a lot of work. The flowers, the candlelit dinners, frantic texting getting up the nerve to make the call, lightheadedness, rapid heartbeat. Wait, that sounds like the meeting I have with my tax accountant tomorrow. But evolutionarily speaking, falling in, being in, falling out of love is a colossal use of energy. So what's the point? We know how the poets and other artists defend love. Now scientists such as anthropologist Helen Fisher are weighing in on just what is this thing called love. 
I think we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction. One is the sex drive, the craving for sexual gratification. The second is romantic love, that obsessive thinking, the craving, the possessiveness, the focus on a particular individual. And the third brain system is attachment, that sense of calm and security you can feel for a long-term partner. So love means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but I think it's these basic three brain systems, lust, romance, and attachment, that are the, the basis of love. So the definition through science is by what's happening in the body, the chemistry that's occurring in your body when you're in love or feeling attachment or when you're, you're feeling lust. So the definition gets at what actually is happening in the brain and in the body in these different states. Uh, of the three uh, brain systems, the one that I and my colleagues uh, are studying is romantic love. And we've now put 49 people who are madly in love into a functional MRI brain scanner and found some of the brain systems that become active when you fall in love with somebody. And um, there's a lot of parts of the brain that become active, but one of the basic ones is a tiny little factory near the base of the brain called the ventral tegmental area. And we found activity in something called the A10 cells. And these cells actually produce dopamine, a natural stimulant, and send this chemical to many brain regions, part of the reward system the brain system for wanting, for focus, for motivation, for goal-oriented behavior, for ecstasy, for craving, for addiction. And indeed, um, I think that um, this is the motivation system of the brain. And so it led me to believe that romantic love is a basic drive, a drive, in fact, to win life's greatest prize, the right mating partner. You said that dopamine is released. What is the role of that? Dopamine is a basic brain chemical uh, we share with all of the other mammals and, um, in fact, all other creatures on this planet. And it's a natural stimulant. And, in fact, we found activity in the same brain region, the ventral tegmental area. The, the same brain region becomes active when you feel the rush of cocaine, and cocaine does drive up uh, dopamine in the brain. Dopamine is associated with focus, with motivation, with goal-oriented behavior, with wanting, with craving, with pleasure, and with addiction. So you said that this has this, the same effect on the brain as an addiction does, in this case cocaine, or, or maybe smoking, I don't know. Right. But when you look at the brain of people who are smokers or addicted to cocaine, do the same areas light up as those of people who are in love? I don't really study addiction but uh, some of the same areas do light up. Now, you know, when you smoke a cigarette, it really is a different feeling from being in love with somebody. And so the brain is a mix and match system. So some brain areas for wanting, for craving, will be similar. And other brain areas associated with wanting a cigarette as opposed to wanting somebody to email you will probably be different. And cognitive processes are different. I mean, if you're craving a cigarette, you think, oh, I'll go around to the store and go and buy one. Whereas if you are craving a human being, you're thinking, well, maybe I ought to call them and see what's going on. Well, it makes me wonder what's at stake if we feel this strong drive and passion when we're in love um, and fear maybe that that love person is not going to reciprocate. What's the evolutionary purpose of this? What's at stake? I think that um, romantic love had to have a very powerful evolutionary purpose because we've got songs, poems, stories, myths, legends. People live for love, they kill for love, they die for love. I mean, this is a very powerful brain system. Sometimes one often thinks a little too powerful when you know people are committing suicide or homicide. I think that the brain system for the sex drive evolved to get you out there looking for a whole range of partners. I think that um, you can feel the sex drive when you're driving along in your car. It doesn't have to do with anybody. 
I think the romantic love evolved to enable you to focus your mating energy on just one individual at a time, thereby conserving mating time and energy. Uh, and then I think attachment, that third brain system, evolved so that you can tolerate this human being, uh, sustain that relationship at least long enough to rear your children as a team. Now, these three brain systems often work together. They're not phases. In other words, you can feel deep attachment to somebody who you know at school and then fall in love with them several years later. You can fall in love with somebody just at first sight before you've ever kissed them. You can have sex with somebody first and then fall in love with them and then feel a deep sense of attachment. So these are not phases. These are brain systems that can operate really often together or independently. And that's the problem is when they operate independently. I mean, when you, you, know, you can lie in bed at night and feel deep sense of attachment to one person while you then swing to feelings of a romantic love for somebody else while you swing into feelings of the sex drive for a host of people. So there can be a committee meeting going on in your head as you swing from one brain system to another. I'm wondering how reliable it is. If the purpose is so that we stay together, maybe have children and raise a family, sometimes we fall in love and we fall out of love and it's not so reliable in the, in the long term. Well, I don't think it is reliable. I mean, you can fall in love um, with the wrong person at the wrong time. I mean, this brain system can be triggered almost instantly. And you can be very happily engaged, involved with another person, expecting children or, or have children, and suddenly you go someplace and this brain system is triggered. But we have a big cerebral cortex with which we make decisions. You can say no to addictions. You can say, I mean, some people are inclined to eat too much. They're inclined to drink too much. They're inclined to smoke cigarettes. And they say no. I'm not doing that. And in the same way, you can say no to romantic love. It's awful hard, but we can do it. Is there an evolutionary purpose for falling out of love? I've often wondered uh, why it is that you do fall out of love. And I do think that that it could have played an, an evolutionary purpose. I've studied divorce in 58 societies in cultures around the world. And as it turns out, if you're going to divorce, you tend to divorce during around the fourth year of marriage. And it began to occur to me that there may be natural weak points in relationships um, associated with uh, forming a pair bond at least long enough to raise a single child through infancy, about four years. And what would be the purpose of sort of falling out of love and no longer feeling attachment? Uh, If you see it in so many cultures, there might be some Darwinian winning explanation and my hypothesis became that we may be somewhat adapted for what I call serial monogamy, a series of pair-bonded relationships, because individuals who have children with more than one partner tend to create more genetic variety in their young. And so maybe the fact that uh, romantic love is fickle and that it can die out in a relationship is an evolutionary mechanism for creating uh, variety in your young. So the seven-year itch might actually have a scientific basis to it, sounds like. Well, I think it's actually the, I, I think it's actually the four-year itch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Now, I wonder if love is found throughout the animal kingdom, or is this what distinguishes us from the non-human animals, that humans fall in love or have romantic love? I think that we inherited this brain system for romantic love from other animals, that other animals feel romantic love too. They don't have a name for it. Scientists call it uh, favoritism, uh, mate preference, uh, sexual preference, selective uh, proceptivity. And when you take a look at the animal community, there's not an animal on this planet who will copulate with anything. Too old, too young, too scruffy, too stupid looking, wrong color, wrong shape, wrong size, and they will not do it. They all have preferences. 
horses. And indeed, in two other species, sheep and a little animal called the prairie vole, we've already established that the same brain system is uh, active. So the same chemicals are involved in attraction in other mammals as in people. Because you can watch in the beginning of the uh, breeding season, elephants, uh, foxes, dogs, uh, when, when somebody, you know, all have preferences and um, they do like animals mates that are symmetrical just the way people do they like the ones that are good looking which is a signal that they probably have a strong immune system we know that all kinds of uh, birds will go for female bird will go for a male with a better piece of real estate is Is this evidence of romantic love or is it evidence of just a kind of natural selection selecting the best mate the fittest mate so that your children are healthy I mean, sometimes when we fall in love with people, it's not necessarily the best mate for us. Well, Darwin had a wonderful um, quote of, about love at first sight, and he talked about a, um, a mallard duck who suddenly fell in love with another duck, and she swam madly around the duck, focused only on that duck, preened in front of the duck, and sure enough, she had fallen in love with a pintail duck, a duck of a different species. So we all make mistakes. Duck from the wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> well, lastly, I wonder, for you, when you're feeling in love or if you're kissing someone, I don't want to get too personal here, are you able to enjoy that feeling without thinking about what parts of your brain are lighting up? Have you ruined the experience for yourself? Far from it. I've, I've um, expanded the experience for myself. You know, you can know every single ingredient in a piece of chocolate cake and sit down and eat that cake and feel that joy. And in the same way, I can feel the joy of kissing somebody and know what's going on. I must say, it has expanded my sympathy for all other creatures. I mean, I walked down the street in New York City, where I live, and look at babies in a baby carriage, and I say, oh boy, you're in for a ride. And in fact, I look at the ducks in the park, I look at dogs, I I look at horses, I look at sheep, I look at elephants, and I can feel, almost feel, what they are feeling, which is that focus, that craving, that motivation to win life's greatest prize. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Helen Fisher is an anthropologist at Rutgers University, the author of Why We Love, The Nature and Chemistry of Romantic Love, and most recently, Why Him, Why Her. Coming up, speed dating, love potions, penguin mating, and romantic notions on Are We Alone? A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Are We Alone and the Science of Love. You must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. Well, given what Helen Fisher says, you can probably guess that a kiss is not just a kiss. It's more like an interchange of data packets. 
Brace for the bits. We're moving TCP protocol. Yep, 12 gigs. Run length encoded. Want to send that UDP to keep the overhead down? Okay, here's the metadata back at you. What's the checksum on that? Yes, a kiss is more than just a kiss. It's a sloppy genetic resume. As if that first smooch isn't nerve-wracking enough, the information passed in that lip lock determines whether your genes make it to the next round in the poker game of life, says biologist Sarah Woodley. This from those who work in the new field of filamentology, the study of kissing. One main idea is that information about quality of a mate might be transmitted. It's also thought that kissing functions in bonding and also in sort of increasing arousal of the individual you're kissing. Well, you say sending information about the quality of a mate. Is it the technique or is it something <laughs> else? I mean, <laughs> Well, when you're kissing, you're exchanging a lot of different chemicals. Uh, there clearly there's an exchange of saliva. But also there's exchanges of body odors because a kiss is often accompanied by an embrace. And there's a lot of research on body odors or human chemosignals or pheromones, they're sometimes called. And um, it's thought that information is signaled about a genetic diversity, potentially, uh, genetic compatibility. And there's some ideas that you can get information about fertility through uh, human chemosignals. Well, you've mentioned pheromones. Those are a kind of hormone, are they not? Not exactly. The, the words pheromone and hormone do sound alike, and they do have a similar root. But a hormone is a signal that's transmitted within a body from one organ to another organ. A pheromone is a signal that's transmitted in the external environment from one individual to another individual of the same species. Well, what would I learn? Suppose I, you know, kiss some random woman off the street. I, I'm not in the habit of doing that, but not that I wouldn't want to be. But, you know, <laughs> assuming I do that, what would getting a, a whiff of uh, her pheromones tell me? Well, a lot more is known about male signals. So can we do a different example of where I get to kiss a perfect stranger, a man on the street? What sort of information I might be getting? Can I do that? Well, I, I give this opportunity okay. up reluctantly, but go ahead. Okay. Well, it really is thought that overall, females in general are choosier than, than males because uh, when we select mates and when we engage in reproduction, we have a lot more to lose. So across the animal kingdom, women or females tend to be choosier. And so uh, a woman might be able to get a lot of information from a man through his odors. And one thought is that uh, our genetic makeup may determine how we smell. So in fact, uh, women are actually able to discriminate odors from men that vary just a small bit genetically. And uh, women thought that in our interest to mate with someone who's slightly genetically dissimilar than we are, it might increase our immune function or it might increase our overall genetic diversity of our offspring, I should say. Are we consciously aware of this? I mean, if, you know, women kiss some guy, some woman kisses some guy, are they aware of the messages they're getting or do they just sort of feel, well, I like the way he kissed or I didn't like the way he kissed or, you know, I didn't like the way he smelled or something. I mean, is there more conscious awareness of this information that we're getting than simply saying I liked it or didn't like it? Probably not. You know, when you're kissing somebody for the first time, you're probably not thinking too much. You're just kind of excited. But you might subconsciously notice their odors if they hadn't bathed recently or if they had bad breath because maybe they hadn't brushed their teeth in a while. I think you would notice those sorts of things. Given the differing agendas here that, you know, a kiss is kind of an SAT uh, test for men from the women's point of view. I guess that's sexually attractive test or something. Uh, do women get more out of kissing than men do? Is it more important for women in, in some sense? No, I don't 
don't think so. I think men and women are probably getting different sorts of information. At this point, it's all speculation, but it is thought that women are using kisses potentially to get information about mate quality. But there are other functions of kissing, and the other hypothesized functions is that it may be involved in bonding. And I think this would be important to both men and women. Even old married couples, they like to peck each other occasionally you know, on the cheek, and I think that's a way of sort of determining whether or not the partner is still interested, still committed. Um, and then another function would be sexual arousal. There's certainly evidence that this is worked by Gordon Gallup, but he finds that both men and women, uh, they report that they kiss more before, uh, shortly before sex than during or after sex. And so they argue that might be consistent with the idea that kissing is sort of increasing arousal in both partners. Uh, but men may also be assessing women through kissing. Apparently, according to Gordon Gallup's study, men did prefer wetter kisses than women, and he argued that perhaps men were weren't as good at smelling, and they were trying to assess female quality by uh, wetter kisses. That's just a hypothesis at this point. So, Sarah, are humans the only species that kisses? No, not at all. Um, some of our close relatives, chimpanzees, kiss bonobos in particular is a example you hear about a lot. But even if you go outside of primates, a lot of species have sort of nuzzling behaviors or face-licking behaviors. For example, I was talking to a scientist last week and he told me that uh, ground squirrels kiss and they, they're not sure what sort of information is being transferred, but there's a distinct behavior where they kind of rub noses and uh, really it looks to be like a, a kissing sort of behavior. Interesting. Well, and you know, a lot of some uh, really only 90% of human societies do kiss, so it's not a universal phenomenon. Do these other societies have some sort of equivalent uh, gesture? Well, it does seem that some of these societies do have perhaps not kisses, but they do have behaviors that do involve close contact, rubbing of noses, or close contact with the facial areas. So it could be that, that they're just coming into contact to exchange pheromones or human chemo signals, possibly. So it could serve the same function, in other words. Perhaps, right. Well, Sarah, thank you very much. And I have to say that of all the field research that uh, I can think of, this uh, comes to the top of my list. (laughs) It's pretty fun, yes. Sarah Woodley is a biologist at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Have you heard of speed dating? It's not what you may think. You look lovely tonight. Thank you. Been here before? First time. What do you do? I'm an architect. Hairdresser. Hobbies? Golf and stamp collecting. You? Origami and basketball. Married? Once. You? Never. Want kids? Yes. Indian food? Love it. Cats or dogs? Cats. Your place? No, yours. Check, please. Speed dating is all the rage. It's a formal matchmaking event that allows lots of singles, at least we hope they're singles, to meet lots of other singles in one go, each for a brief moment before moving on. The goal? To find a love connection. Now speed dating is being examined in the laboratory to find out just how signals of interest are conveyed and how quickly. Can we successfully size up potential mates in under three minutes? Brain scientist Skylar Place says yes. So speed dating as a proxy for actual mate choice gives us uh, several advantages over trying to study mate choice in the wild one of which is that we get clear, definite mate choice decisions. So we know after these short interactions, if the man and the women are actually interested in each other, and that allows us to study these brief interactions as a way to look at how they might be happening in more naturalistic settings. So what is the setup that you use that wasn't so natural but effective? My collaborators in Germany, uh, Lars Penka and Peter Todd, spent about two years ago almost a year's worth of data 
gathered in a laboratory doing speed dating. So they brought uh, real singles into the lab and videotaped and audio recorded their interactions and had them run through real three-minute speed dates. Now, as an overview of how speed dating works, they would sit down for three minutes and then what happens? Every woman would be seated at a table and each man would come to her one at a time and they would speak and converse for about three minutes. And at the end of that three-minute date, a bell would ring signaling the end of the interaction. And the man would write on his card if he wanted to see the woman again. And the woman would independently write on her card if uh, she wanted to see the man again. And then they would go on to the next interaction. And at the end of the evening, the experimenter collects all of these cards and they match up the people who were mutually interested in each other. So these men and these women, they were sitting down, they were sizing each other up, they didn't have much time to do it. But then another group of observers was sitting in on this experiment as well. Yeah, so what we had from these interactions in Germany was videotapes of all the speed dates. And what we later did here at Indiana is we had our Indiana students watch these videos and try to predict themselves, not knowing the individuals, if the man was interested in the woman And likewise, if the woman was interested in the man on these speed dates. So the idea is they would be looking for body language. What kind of things would they be looking for? Exactly. So they could be utilizing body language, eye contact, body motion, who was leaning in more, if the woman was, you know, moving her hands more, perhaps playing with her hair. Uh, One of the neat parts about this study is that because the dates were in German and our observers were English speaking, they did not understand what was being said on the dates. How well did your observers do in assessing who was interested in who? So on average, uh, the observers were pretty decent at predicting male interest, and they had a harder time predicting female interest. But there was great variability. So there were some men and women who were very easy to read, and all of the observers were very accurate at predicting their interest. And there were some individuals that seemed to be acting kind of deceptive, where the observers all thought they were doing one thing, and in reality, they were feeling the other direction. Can you give me an example of the sort of signal that said to your observers that it was clear that this woman was interested in this man or it was clear that he wasn't interested in her? So unfortunately, we weren't able to analyze the individual signal. So we don't know which signs were being used to illustrate positive interest or negative interest. And generally speaking, there's been a fair amount of research on this topic, and it's unclear universally what signals are used. So it's not that all women, when they play with their hair, that means they're interested or not. But it sounds like the point is that some very powerful signals, powerful information is being transferred very quickly. Yes, absolutely. So there's an enormous amount of information available with the nonverbal, the body language, as well as the vocal signaling. And our observers were able, in a very limited amount of time, in 10 seconds, which is probably more than enough time, to predict what was going on on these dates. So with more time, you don't necessarily do better. In kind of the, the blink of an eye, you have a fairly good idea of the potential for a romantic interest in these interactions. Now, what was it you were hoping to learn? So our, our big picture, our research agenda here is to discover kind of the the information that people are utilizing and how they're utilizing that information in the search for potential mates. You said that these potential dates could determine in 10 seconds or so whether or not they were interested in the other person. Is there an evolutionary reason for this? I would think so. So evolutionarily, there are you know an infinite number of possibilities out there. So there's an infinite, almost infinite number of potential partners that you could choose to, to go on dates with. So you'll need to find an efficient way to kind of search for these individuals. And this is similar to how other animals search for mates. So there's uh, research showing that other animals can use these kind of quick blink decisions as well. 
and can utilize social information and look at what other people are doing, what other animals are doing, and use that information when determining their own interest in potential mates. Well, Skylar, I wonder how accurate it is, though, because sometimes we make not very smart decisions when we size someone up very quickly, and then we fall in love with people that we've known for months or even years, and that works out really well. True. So, you know, it's not it's not that in the love at first sight might not always be accurate. So you might have a, a good inkling about someone, and that might turn out to be a relationship that doesn't work out, and you might take a while in order to find someone who really matters to you. So definitely, it's not something that can be can be solved in the blink of an eye, but in the blink of an eye, you might have some idea at least. Skylar Place is a doctoral student at Indiana University's Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. Love. It's seeing each other across the room, eyes locking, hearts racing, taking a pledge of commitment. And the male and female crave contact with each other, and they have babies and form a lifelong bond, that's sort of the ideal family relationship. For prairie voles, otherwise known as field mice. Now, there are different kinds of voles, but prairie voles are the settling down type. While other voles are out painting the desert or the grassland red, this species stays at home to nest, and it's monogamous. No wandering vole eyes here. Recently, Emory University neurobiologist Larry Young's team isolated the gene that makes the prairie vole faithful and injected it into another vole, the meadow vole, and voila, instant stay-at-home vole husband. Dr. Young has created a love potion, it would seem, at least for small rodents. I work with a couple of different species, one of which is the prairie vole, and these have a family structure that's remarkably similar to ours. Once they get together and they mate, they nest together, that's in contrast to other voles that we study, and in fact, 95% of all mammals, because most species do not form any kind of lasting relationship at all between the partners that goes beyond the mating act. So let me understand this. Monogamy is a rarity amongst mammals, uh, and yet for some voles, it isn't such a rarity. Now, you said other voles, but these are other species of voles or just other individuals of the same species? Well, the same, actually, now we know. Uh, In general, it's other species have very different kinds of social structures. But even among prairie voles, we find that some of them tend to be very bond very quickly with a partner and very faithful and stay with and protect that partner. Uh, whereas others are what we call wanderers. Well, if this were humans that we were talking about, I mean, people would say, well, it's the result of television or it's uh, video games. or There would be some cultural phenomenon that this lack of monogamy would be ascribed to. These guys are playing around because something's wrong about their background. I assume that's not the explanation you are looking for in these voles. Well, certainly experience may have some role, but uh, what we've found in the voles is that in addition to experience, genes are playing an important role. For example, you know, if we have the two different species and most of the individuals of one species do form these relationships and in the other species no one does, then you have to assume that there is some genetic species difference. So you were looking for something in there, something about their chemistry that was different. Did did you find anything? There's two hormones that seem to play an important role. Uh, One is oxytocin. Now, this is the maternal hormone. It's responsible for mother-infant bonding. But in prairie voles, we find that that same hormone is what sparks the bond between the female and the male. Now, we know that because you can take a female prairie vole and infuse her with oxytocin and place a male in front of her, and she will bond with that male pretty instantly. So it's sort of a magic love potion. In the male, it's the vasopressin, a very similar molecule. 
But when a male is with a female and they're interacting and they're mating, his brain gets a jolt of, of vasopressin that then stimulates that variable male to bond with his female partner. Well, you said that there was a genetic difference here. Now, I, I assume that the genetic difference results in a different amount of these various hormones being produced? So that's a good guess, and that's what we thought initially. But uh, when we looked in the brains of the meadow voles, the ones who don't bond, and the ones who are monogamous, the perivoles, we found that there was the same amount of oxytocin and vasopressin in their brain, but there was a very special difference, and that is the location of the receptors that respond to those hormones. Well, when we looked in the brains, we found that in the monogamous species, parts of the brain that are involved in reward and also addiction were loaded with these receptors. The ones who could not form bonds had no receptors there at all. So the key difference here in terms of the chemistry is the location in the brain of the receptors that respond to those hormones. That's governed by a genetic difference. So could you in principle then sort of re-engineer these promiscuous vol types into making them into, you know, the, the great American family kind of vol? We actually did that. Uh, we were able to take the gene from the monogamous prairie vole and we put it into a virus and injected that virus into the reward pleasure center of the metal vole brain. That virus caused the gene to be expressed in that area and then we placed those males with females, allowed them to mate, and then we asked whether they formed bonds and indeed in the animals where we put the receptor in the right spot, those animals were able to form bonds. So that gives you pretty strong evidence that even a single gene, when it's expressed in the right place, can transform social behaviors. You can actually change their sexual behavior by just re-engineering uh, the genes then. Right. It's remarkable. And, you know, I think that the same sort of thing is happening over evolutionary time because under different circumstances and different environments, maybe the animals who form these bonds are much more successful and have more babies. Well, then their gene structure changes a little bit to allow it to be expressed in the correct areas to promote this bonding. Whereas in other areas where if you're the, the animal who's promiscuous and you mate with many females and they're all able to survive, then that gene structure would evolve, become more prevalent, and the animals would become more promiscuous. So it's this sort of relationship, this play between what is in your environment and what is the best strategy and how your genes can uh, be changed to respond to that. Well, I have to make the obvious link to, of course, human behavior. On the one hand, monogamy is looked upon as the right way to reproduce and take care of children because, after all, children require a long time to grow up and you have to, you know, socialize them and so forth and so on. You can't just abandon them. So a monogamous relationship sounds like it would have survival value. But on the other hand, uh, you know, both males and females play around. D does this mean that we sort of have a, some receptors but not a whole lot of receptors? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Right. It seems that we're sort of somewhere in the middle, and maybe that's the most adaptive strategy. I sh should have mentioned before that even though prairie voles are monogamous, we say they're monogamous, which means that you know they, they usually nest together, they raise their offspring together. If a male prairie vole is off on his own and a, another female comes by, he may actually mate with her. But the important thing is that he comes back to his partner at night, and that's because of that bond between him and his partner. Prairie voles are not so different from people. Well, finally, Larry, then... Does this suggest that uh, down the road somewhere we might be able to uh, make, if you will, a love potion, something that would keep couples together without uh, playing around 
And uh, all that would be required is that they, you know, take a pill or a shot or something, you know, the day they get married. Well, I think that sounds like science fiction. But, you know, as we begin to learn more and more about the chemistry that sort of causes these bonds to be formed, I don't think that it's really out of the question that one day we would be able to produce a chemical cocktail that might activate these same sort of brain areas that might sort of mimic in some way these feelings that we call love and maybe even more realistic. I think that it may be possible to use some of these drugs in combination with things like marital therapy. Uh, you know, what if your, your marriage is on the rocks and you really want to feel that connection with your spouse again? Maybe you can take a pill and be, you know, go to that therapist and uh, sit down and talk to your spouse and maybe uh, you can start seeing eye to eye again. On the one hand, I find that a comforting thought, and on the other hand, I'm not sure that I do. But, but it was, right, if this gets in the wrong hands, you know, it can be that's unethical right. things happening. That's right. Your parents, you know, have you bonding to the woman that they think you ought to marry. I mean, that kind yeah. of thing. Right. <laughs> well, well, certainly we're not able to do that now. I think there's a lot more to learn in terms of, you know, where these chemicals are acting and what brain areas in, in these things. But uh, um, it's something that we really need to, to think about. All right. Well, Larry Young, thank you so much for talking with me. Okay. Thank you. Larry Young is a neurobiologist at Emory University in Atlanta. Up next, what made observers think that two male penguins, Silo and Roy, were an amorous pair? They point their bills in the air and sort of flutter their wings a little bit, and sometimes they'll make a characteristic vocalization, and that's ordinarily something that we interpret as meaning, you know, you're mine and I'm yours, and they did it with each other. But were Silo and Roy really in love? It's the science, Cupid. And are we alone? From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. So love has an evolutionary purpose. With the right batch of pheromones and hormones... And calls on cell phones. You might make that apple of your eye yours. And if it all works out, you can go off, nest, and raise your young. But that's assuming that the evolutionary purpose of love is to reproduce. Yet male homo sapiens fall in love with other males and females with other females. So how does homosexuality fit in, evolutionarily speaking, if love and sex are all about passing on your genes? Well, that's too narrow a definition, says Marlene Zuck, a biologist at the University of California, Riverside. Let's look at non-human animals as an example, and the case of Silo and Roy, two male penguins in the Central Park Zoo in New York who were devoted to each other. They acted like sweethearts until they broke up and Silo took up with a female penguin, Still, Silo and Roy were together for six years. So it would seem that, as we all know, love and sex, even among penguins, is complicated. Now let's see what we do know. First, the parameters. Dr. Zuck, how common is homosexuality in the non-human animal kingdom? Well, of course I'm going to do what you expected, which is to fudge a little bit. It depends what you mean by homosexuality. If you just mean sexual behavior between members of the same sex that occurs on occasion, then it's extremely widespread. To our knowledge, it's been observed in well over 400 species of animals. If, on the other hand, you mean lifelong, exclusive pairing between members of the same sex, then it's very rare. 
Well, the famous case is that of Silo and Roy, two, <laughs> uh-huh. two penguins. I'm sure you've been asked about this. Both males who uh, at one time seemed to have bonded, were they considered homosexual or were they just buddies? Well, again, I, you know, I guess it depends on who you ask, and we'll never know what they thought, but they were certainly pair-bonded by any definition that an animal behaviorist would use. In other words, they paid attention to each other and exhibited displays that you ordinarily see between male and female. Um, they cooperated in rearing an egg and so forth. I actually tend to prefer using the phrase same-sex um, behavior or same-sex pairing or something like that. Because that gets you away from the whole, well, are they really gay, are they actually homosexual, and so forth. So were they sexually active, or was that not a motivating factor for their bonding? I don't know how often anyone saw, you know, what was actually mating behavior in them or not. But, you know, again, the way scientists often look at this is to say, gee, the behaviors that they're exhibiting toward each other are pretty much like the behaviors that males and females exhibit toward each other. There's a display called uh, the ecstatic display, or sometimes it's just called ecstatic behavior. That means that they point their bills in the air and sort of flutter their wings uh, a little bit, and sometimes they'll make a characteristic vocalization, and that's ordinarily something that we interpret as meaning, you know, you're mine and I'm yours, and they did it with each other. Well, the romantic among us might suggest, well, maybe it was love that kept them together. But, of course, that begs the question, is there such a thing as love in the animal world? I think you know, that's one of those things everybody's going to have to make up for themselves. I and mean, from a scientific perspective, you know, we don't talk about love among individuals that we can't ask questions of. So, you know, if, if they think they're in love, that's fine. But we can't ever ask Roy and Silo because we don't know how they feel. We just know how they behave. And they certainly behave like, you know, are, are the male and female penguins in love with each other? We don't know. All we know is that they behave in a certain way that shows that they're cleaving unto one another. Now, if you were to take uh, the point of view of a Darwinian evolutionist... Uh, As would, I pretty much always do. Okay. <laughs> well, well, then one would ask how homosexual behavior could persist, uh, and particularly, we think, in the animal world, because, after all, sex is all about reproduction and passing your genes on to the next generation. And if it's not a male-female relationship, that isn't going to work. So, you know, what possible function... That would ensure the survival of, in this case, penguins. Could this kind of behavior be uh, be causing? I mean, what what? Why is it? Why yeah, are they that, doing that? Well, and that's the that, that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question that everybody always wants to know. And I think the answer to it lies in something that you said that turns out actually not to be so much the case, which is that well, sex is all about reproduction in the animal kingdom. And it turns out that in fact, in animals, just like in people, sex is often about more than reproduction, particularly in animals that are social, like primates or uh, maybe the penguins or some other animals that are interacting with each other in a lot of ways besides just, you know, meeting, mating, and parting. Um, sex is about more than just making babies. And it's, it can be that way in a couple of different contexts. One of my favorite animals in this regard is the bonobo, which are these little relatives of the uh, chimpanzee. They used to be called pygmy chimpanzees. And it, for the, they live in very complicated social groups, and they engage in sexual relations with each other um, with the same sex. Uh, adults and juveniles will um, engage in sexual interactions. Juveniles will have sexual play with each other. Um, and there's no shortage of bonobos. What it seems to be is that sex for them functions in a lot of capacities other than just 
making babies. It means that they're resolving um, social tensions in the group. They're using sex as a way to communicate with each other, to play with each other. And so just because individuals of the same sex are engaging in sexual interactions doesn't mean that they're doomed to never reproduce because sex is about more than reproduction. But that suggests that maybe their behavior would be good for the species, but not so good for the individual. And I thought that, uh, you know, following Dawkins, he would say, look, it's all about the individual, in fact. Oh, but it is about the individual, because if you, for instance, have better relationships with the other members of your social group, that long term is going to serve you much better than if you're an individual that doesn't know how to resolve social conflicts, for example. So it does come down to the individual and what benefits the individual. It just doesn't have to benefit the individual right now, right then, with that sexual act. Uh, the other example I sometimes use is, is that you could think of everything. Again, I'm a Darwinian, and you think of everything in life that you know, animals do uh, as being about sex. I mean, keeping warm is about sex. Saying the reason that you need to find food is so that you can reproduce. Everything's about sex. But even if keeping warm is ultimately about sex, it doesn't mean that when you put on a sweater, you get pregnant. But the relationship doesn't have to be quite that tight. All right. Well, then it was reported in the, the papers with some dismay that uh, about four or five years ago, Silo and Roy <laughs> broke up. Indeed. <laughs> and Silo went off with a, with, a, with a woman, with a female in any case. Another... Yeah, from, from California, which somehow seemed to make it worse for people. I'm not quite sure why, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what's the interpretation of this? I mean, was, was that a matter of bisexuality? What was going on? I think it's a matter of people trying to put human labels on something that animals are doing. We have absolutely no idea how common same-sex pairings are in nature because the sexes look alike, and so for all we know, there's some proportion of penguins doing this all the time, and they'll pair with a member of their own sex, then they'll break up, they'll pair with a member of the opposite sex, and sometimes those break up, and no one says, oh no, it's an end to heterosexuality if a heterosexual pair breaks up. Well, I, I suppose that this generated a lot of uh, commentary from both uh, both sides of the spectrum on, on the question of homosexuality amongst uh, humans, because they tend to anthropomorphize what they see in this behavior of the penguins, don't they? Oh, absolutely, and and it was quite comical seeing you know what what went on, um, and the the movie The March of the Penguins also kind of added into this with people being interested in whether this was a demonstration of fidelity and sacrifice, um, and then Roy and Silo, you know, what was oh someone said um, well now that you know once Roy and Silo broke up that they would be dropped from the the homosexual A list faster than a a spilled smelt, or there was some you know sort of attempt at trying to make an analogy there. So we shouldn't uh, read uh, read too many. More moral lessons into this. Well, yeah, and, and, and partly that's because, you know, you do end up making some outlandish conclusions, and also partly what I want to know is what does this mean for the animals? Never mind what it means for people in our political or social agendas. Uh, something I've become interested in recently and that's come out more recently than the stuff about Roy and Silo is that um, there are Laysan albatross um, in Hawaii, you know, those great big birds that are um, uh, seabirds spend most of their lives um, uh, out at sea, but then come and breed in these colonies uh, in remote um, islands. And there's a colony that's been recently established uh, in which about 30% of the pairs are female-female. And they have a nest together, and um, one or both of the females mates with a male that's already paired um, to another female elsewhere in the colony, and they raise a baby. And they their ability to do that's pretty good. It's not quite as good as the... Um, pairs uh, that are heterosexual, 
but they do a reasonably good job, and that's happening out in nature. And so what I'm interested in is not what does this mean about, you know, the gay lifestyle for humans, but, gee, what is it that's gone on in nature that's selected for that? How is it that they're you know, adopting this behavior rather than some other behavior? Well, now, there was an experiment that you commented on involving, I think it was fruit flies, right, where they, they, they made some change, some, if, if you will, biochemical change to uh, fruit flies, and the, the males stopped courting females. They started courting males, suggesting that, you know, you could turn homosexual behavior on and off, uh, you know, just by giving the right, uh, if you will, genetic change to the, the individuals involved. So we, we know absolutely for a fact that there are things in fruit flies that influence, there are genes that influence which sex they court. In this particular case, there's a gene that actually makes them, it changes the way they interpret the smells that they're receiving from other individual fruit flies. And so ordinarily they would only respond to something that smells like a female by courting it. But in this case, if you do make this genetic change that's mediated by a neurotransmitter, you know, like... Um, dopamine or you know, one of these things, if you change that, then instead of courting only things that smell like a female, they'll also court things that smell like a male. And so they become less discriminating in what they court. Does that suggest that the flies are gay? Now maybe you see why I don't like using the same terms we use for humans in talking about lots of other animals. You can say they're courting males. I don't really think that makes them homosexual so much. And so sure, there's a biological basis or a genetic basis to which sex they court. I don't really think that that means that we're suddenly going to start seeing people going into bars and, you know, popping some kind of pill that makes them, you know, swing one way or the other. Yeah, but, but that's because, as you say, this, uh, the genetic uh, instructions, if you will, are always mediated by the environment. So exactly. it's, it's always a combination of ingredients product, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, our sexual behavior, like everything else, is a product of our genes and the environment. And I don't think there's anything we're going to discover that's going to change that principle. All right. Well, finally, Marlene, I want to come back to love because uh, that's something that's important to humans. I don't know whether it's important to animals, and really that's the essence of my question. I mean, there are a lot of kinds of love in human relationships, love between family members, uh, romantic love, uh, friendly platonic love for that matter. You know, do we know whether any of these apply to animals? Do any of them actually develop a feeling of love in the sense that a human would? You know... I think you could probably get someone to say they're sure they do. I think that when you look at animals, there's an abyss there. And I know how they're acting, but I just don't know how they're feeling. Well, um, well, and what to, about people who say, my dog loves me? I mean, what does that mean? I think that, you know, it's possible to, it, it, but it tells you more about them than it does about the dog. There's an old quote from um, uh, Henry Beston who wrote about um, living on Cape Cod. He, he talks about animals that we should be careful not to look at them as being, that, that they're not brethren and they're not underlings, and that, you know, we need to view them as being present in sort of a universe that's different from our own. Yeah, so I, as, as I recall, the, the quote was something like, uh, they don't just live in another world, they live in a different universe. That's right, yeah, yeah. Something and, like... and so the idea is, it's not just that we shouldn't look at them as being below us and that we're these, you know, pinnacles of evolution or creation or whatever. It's that they're not even just under us, they're not even really like us in some very fundamental ways. And so I guess that's part of what I mean about if you look at what animals are really doing, it's much more interesting than trying to impose our ideas about homosexuality or love or lust onto the animals themselves. 
All right. Well, Marlene Zuck, I, I have to say that now looking back on all those times that uh, women have called me an animal, <laughs> I, I, I realize now that uh, they simply didn't understand. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Thanks a lot for having me. Marlene Zuck is a biologist at the University of California, Riverside. And that's it for our show. We'd like to thank Barbara Vance, Gary Niederhoff, and Emmanuel Romero for their help with the program, also the SETI Institute and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.